Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info capitalchurch.co. Calls him out and then he talks about justification by faith. It's kind of a complicated argument. We can't get into it. But kind of the tail end of this argument, verse 24, it says, So then, Paul writes, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So Jesus, in other words, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? So you and I don't have to fulfill the requirements of the law. Jesus, through his faithful death, burial, and resurrection, has fulfilled the law for us. So our relationship with the law has been transformed, right, because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And because of the faithfulness of Jesus, Paul continues in this last clause, that we might be justified by faith. To be justified by faith is all about desegregation. To be justified by faith is to be included into the family of God. It does include salvation, but it's much more than that. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, I love this, you are all what? Could you say that one more time? You are all one more time. Second service, I love you. You are all you are all sons of God through faith. Well, Chris, what if I'm a woman? You're still a son. Like, this is like crazy for us. Is Paul like, is he emphasizing um, patriarchy? In fact, as we read through this, Paul's doing the opposite. He's anti-patriarchal. He's using sons and applying it in a gender-inclusive way. To be a son was to have all the inheritance of the father. So Paul is saying something so revolutionary, so anti-patriarchy. If patriarchy is about the oppression of genders and the unilateral power of a man, Paul is not advocating for that. He is saying that if you are in Christ, essentially, he'll say in Galatians 6, you are a new creation. So Jesus has completely restructured your identity through his faithful death. And it doesn't matter what, what background you come from, what walk of life, what ethnicity, whether you're a slave or free, he'll talk about this. No matter your gender, if you are in Christ, you are a son. What, what, is, what is the inheritance that God has given us? It's the participation in the Spirit of God. It's all the blessing that God wants to give every single person to rule creation. That's like some, put that in your theolog theological pipe and please don't smoke it. It's, that was stupid. Anyway, verse 27. For as many of you... Oh, okay. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have what? You've put on Christ. Verse 28. For there's neither Jew, I love this, nor Greek. The world cannot offer this to you. The world utilizes monochromatic concepts, right? Hard and fast concepts. I'm sorry, the Republican Party cannot offer this to you. The Democratic Party cannot offer this to you. A Democratic Socialist cannot offer this to you. A utopian progressive thinker cannot offer this to you. Buddha Muhammad cannot offer this to you. Americans cannot offer this to you. The President of the United States cannot offer this to you. Only Jesus can desegregate society and bless not just a few people, 
who are on the top of a hierarchy, but in Jesus, the hierarchy is stinking broken. And God blesses not just a few people on the top, but all people who call upon the name of the Lord. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. This is Jesus' radical vision of the church. There is no male and female. What Paul is not saying is like we're now like we don't have, we're genderless. We have no past. We no longer look to our ethnicity, whatever. What he's saying is that we are no longer defined by those things. In fact, if you're in Christ, you're defined by Jesus. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm not greater than you and you're not greater than me when it comes to the availability of the Spirit. Right? We are all one. You can have all that God has for you because you're not in a church first. You are first in Christ. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs. Everyone say heirs. So powerful. I wish I could talk about that, but we can't do that today. Heirs according to the promise. One last passage. It's found in 1 Corinthians 12, one of my all-time favorite passages. Two verses, and then we'll pray. And I'm out of breath. I need to work out a little bit more. <laughs> okay. For just as the body is one, and as many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were, could you say that word? All. Baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. You are baptized into not just Christ, but you are baptized into the spirit, but you're also baptized into the body. And I love this one, this last clause. And all were made to drink. I love this. The word to drink means to imbibe. If you, on 4th of July, you imbibed lemonade, like, like me, you, you felt weird at the end of the night, right? Imbibe means to overflow. It means superabundance. And you were made to drink of one spirit, and you were baptized into one body. And everyone said, bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your grace today. Just thank you the next few uh, moments that you would uh, be with us. We know you're with us today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the 4th of July. We thank you for fireworks. Lord, we thank you for fun. We thank you for family. But more importantly, we thank you that we are alive on this Sunday and we are in your presence and you are doing something powerful in our lives right now. Holy Spirit, come and speak to your sons and daughters. Lord, bring encouragement in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Um, has anyone heard of Andre Agassi? Just show of hands. How many of you heard of Andre Agassi, right? Wow, many of you have heard of Andre Agassi. How many of you love tennis? Okay, a few of you love tennis. Uh, but Andre Agassi, maybe you've heard my story. I grew up um, kind of, I just like, he was the guy that I wanted to be like. Um, I worshipped him. He was my hero. 
I actually patterned my, my tennis game after him. I got a big racket, and I slapped. I actually changed my grip to a Western forehand so I can slap the ball, right, just like Andre Agassi. But what I really love, my cousin and I grew up, and even Tracy, she loved Agassi as well. Um, but uh, one of the reasons why we loved Andre Agassi was, I mean, he just caught, he was like um, on the forefront, social forefront. Um, I loved his denim shorts. I don't know if you remember, he wore denim, brought denim back in the 80s. Again, if you don't know who Andre Agassi was, he was a tennis player in the 80s, late 80s, 90s, and early part of the 2000s. So he brought back uh, denim shorts and denim shirts, and uh, he maintained acid wash. I mean, everything was acid wash. Like, his hair was crazy. My cousin grew a mullet because of Andre Agassi. I every day just took a can of hairspray and tried to do a mullet like Andre Agassi, but my hair was curly and I was a redhead, so it just looked horrible, right? But I would hairspray my hair all the time. I just loved Andre Agassi. But if you don't know who Andre Agassi was, he was considered the great iconoclast, right? So he was the archetype of, of like my generation, and I didn't know it at the time, but kind of the archetype of rebellion, so he kind of re re rebelled against the establishment. Um, like his, his branding was all about unlimited freedom. I'm going to be my own person. That's why he didn't go to Wimbledon for six years because he didn't want to wear white, and white was associated with the establishment, and he didn't want to do that. And so he just wore acid wash jeans and colorful T-shirts, and he slapped his forehand, and uh, he dated Brooke Shields. I don't even know who that is. But like, he just had, I mean, he was, he was a cultural uh, icon. Um, in his book, it's interesting, in his book that came, about maybe ten, came out 10 years ago, I was reading it, his autobiography, he, uh, he wrote about his need to belong, and then he tied that into tennis, in, this, in his words, and I'm paraphrasing, he said tennis for him, and he was at the time, you know, a great iconoclast, and he was talking about unlimited freedom, he was the rebel, he was anti-establishment, anti-community, he's going to do his own thing, he's going to be his authentic self, he wrote during that time that tennis, for him, was the loneliest sport in human history. He said he would go out, this is kind of an interesting thought experience, put yourself in his shoes. So he goes on to describe how he gets on the tennis court, and uh, his coaches are in the box, but they can't communicate. So it's just him versus some other dude, right? And... Uh, he, he quickly realized, because he came on the scene, the tour, as a young man, like 15, 16 years old, that he quickly came to the realization that the full responsibility of winning and losing every single point, in other words, um, he had to shoulder all of that. And for him, it was crushing. It was crushing because he had a great father wound. The reason why he was anti-establishment is because he was his anti-father. His father uh, mentally, physically, emotionally abused him. And because of that, it formed this insatiable desire um, to be free, untethered from fam family, untethered from community. Thinking about this over the last few days with Andre Agassi, um, I've come to the realization that he is um, our American cultural values in microcosm. The general American, this is a generalization, I get it, some of us aren't like this, but generally speaking, Americans value unlimited freedom over everything else, right? We want to do things our way. It's an interesting paradox is that we want to belong, but we're afraid of belonging 
because of the, the connotations of community. We've, we've inherited, as I talked about last week, we've inherited this long tradition of this aversion for ossified families and communities, right? Somehow communities hold us back. If we, are, if we, if we belong to a community, we know we need it. In the very fiber of our bones, we know we need people. The problem is, is if we belong to something bigger than ourselves, to a community, to a church, we're afraid we're going to go back to leave it to beaver, right? Some of us are commitment phobes. Some of us have had bad experiences with relationships. And that could be the reason why we um, don't want to be a part of community. Some of us, if you're in my shoes, I don't want to go back to community. If community means something like life lived in the 19th century where you had to marry your first cousin and you had to live with your family, all that weird stuff, right? That's kind of a joke. No? Okay. Should I move on? So... Many people have this deep-seated fear when it comes to community, and yet we want community. I want you to think for a moment, because this, this um, Andre Agassi, and he's changed, and I love him, he's amazing, but this Andre Agassi mentality of hyper-individualism, right, being untethered from family and community, has led to this utilitarian relationship with people and community and groups. And I want you to think about this just for a moment. I want you to think about every single day how you relate to various institutions or groups that make up much of your life, right? Think of maybe your, your employer, your place of work, maybe going to Albertsons, maybe the Boise Co-op, maybe going to Starbucks, right? You go to Starbucks because you're exhausted and you're raising 50 kids and you need some caffeine for crying out loud, right? Right, think about all the different places that you go and all the institutions that you have some sort of consumer relationship with um, most of us do not, and there's nothing wrong with this, but most of us do not ask what we can do for those institutions. When I go to the Boise Co-op for my wife looking for Himalaya, Himalayan berries, right? Some weird thing, and it takes me forever. The last thing I'm thinking about is how I can serve the Boise Co-op. Boise, this is my mentality, and this is your mentality. We go to the co-op because we know they are going to meet our needs. My wife needs pickles, right? Or my wife needs this, or my wife needs this. I go on a beautiful trip, right, <laughs> with so much joy and excitement. And I shop for three hours trying to find the most obscure brands ever invented on the planet, right? I do that because... Kel and I, we have a need, right? So we don't think of these institutions that we're interacting with um, on a daily basis. Um, we, we don't think of them as doing something for them, right? Um, we want them to do something for us. This has crept into the church. For example, what happens is we establish our personal goals. We have our quiet time with Jesus. All those are great. We have our personal dreams, right? We want to be in the ministry or we want to go to this mission field, or we want to go to Kenya and do that, and that's, all those things are great. But we usually establish our goals apart from community and talking to other people and really having a dense, thick relationship with other people. And then what we do is we utilize various groups, or in our case, churches, to facilitate the realization of those personal goals. So we exist, and this is just a hyper-individualistic 
kind of mentality. We exist for our own sake, right? We have our true authentic self. God wants to bless us, and yes, God wants to bless you. Can I get an amen to that? But somehow that's unrelated to being a part of a local micro community. That's building for the kingdom of Jesus. And if we're not careful, that's our mindset, we start to utilize church or other groups or relationships in a commodified way. We come to church like we go to Boise Co-op. We just come for ourselves. And I want you to come on one level for yourself because many of us, all of us, need Jesus. All of us cannot live outside the grace of Jesus. We're all broken. Can I get an amen to that? All of us have a little bit of crazy in us, right? All of us, we have our bad days and our bad weeks and our bad months. Yes, we come to church, and it's in church that God speaks to our personal situation without question. The problem is, is if for a while you start to treat the church as like some consumer thing, you commodify the preaching, you commodify the worship, you start to rank the worship, you start to rank the preaching, you start to rank the kids' ministry, you start to rank the communication, I don't like all this intellectual talk, or I don't like all this charismatic talk, you start to rank, 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 you become judgmental, you become critical. If that's the case, which I've seen this a lot, you become a person that's all about self-maximization, and you've lost the fact that being a part of church is learning to give your life away. You are not called, you're not here so we can just all serve your needs. On one level, yes. On one level, yes. But we are all here together to serve each other's needs. This utilitarian relationship with groups in our nation has um, a, a tragic fallout. It's led to anxiety. It's led to despair. For some people, it's led to them taking their lives. In fact, many sociologists have made the case. It's a strong case. It's to the point where statistically it just it makes the most sense of what's happening in our nation. But they've made the case that our anxiety and loneliness epidemic is the byproduct of the withering of community bonds. In other words, you were not designed, you were not created by God to make decisions apart from a community. Think about the nearly infinite decisions and choices that you have to make in a given calendar year. It's startling, especially if you have a lot of kids, right? You have all sorts of decisions that you have to make. And so many people are in this, this fluid decision-making process every single day, and they're getting to the point because they're untethered to community, any sort of community, that they can't shoulder the responsibility of making decisions and they become paralyzed. It leads to despair and hopelessness. You and I are designed, not just you and I, but every human being is designed to do life together. Can I get an amen? The great majority of people in the words of Robert Putman, on this planet, never needed modern therapy. And, I, and I'm totally for modern therapy. I'm not against it. Please hear what I'm saying. This is just a description of where so many people are at. But the great majority of people 
on this planet never needed modern therapy until society began to dump the responsibility for making life's decisions squarely upon the lonely shoulders of the individual. In other words, life was never meant to be like tennis. You by yourself with your racket, everybody else watching, you can't talk to your coach, you have no relationship with anybody else, and you have to bear the responsibility and even the consequences of your decisions. If, if life is like tennis, it will only lead to the place of despair and anxiety and unmitigated hopelessness. You and I need each other. Can I get an amen to that? In fact, there's a unique um, problem when it comes to, to childhood and families in America. It's a problem unique to the West and in, in particular to America itself. Robert Bella writes, the primary problems of childhood are what some psychoanalysts call um, separation and individuation, right? So kids, as they get a little bit older, they struggle with separation and anxiety. We're in the season, my wife and I, with um, our two eight-month, they're almost eight months, um, where when we leave the room, they start, they start to cry a lot. They look at us. Don't you love that, mom and dad? It's kind of weird how we like this, how we want to be wanted, right? And they're crying, and they're throwing fits, and we're like, oh, it's so cute, right? Um, but this is kind of the season that, that Kel and I are in. This is normal, right? You've experienced this as a mom and dad. Robert Bell continues, indeed, childhood is chiefly a time of preparation for the most important event of, of leaving home, right? Separation and individuation are issues that must be faced by all human beings. So he's saying, okay, that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. Your kid is going to be okay, right? But then he says this, but leaving home in its American sense is not normal. What have we been, and this is part and parcel, woven in the fabric of how we think about ourselves as Americans, we think the ultimate dream, fulfillment, lies on the other side of getting away. I get it, but getting away from your parents and your sisters, especially if you had a bad relationship with them, or getting away from your hometown, like getting away from maybe the place of origin or birth. Americans believe, it's weird, I fell into this in my teens, and I had the best family in the world, my parents were great. They were the same on Sunday as they were Monday through Saturday. They were wonderful parents. But I fell into the lie that if I was going to make something out of myself, I had to leave. Now, if you leave, that's fine. But this is a unique American mythology that ultimate fulfillment and the good life lies on the other side of leaving home. I'm just going to tell you, I, I don't parent, my wife and I don't parent from that. We've given our lives every single day. We die daily. Scott and I had this conversation. We die daily for our children, figuratively, obviously. We give everything to them. I expect them to stay around for a while. Can I get an amen? Gosh darn it. If you have kids spread around the country, this is, there's no judgment. I'm not trying to make, I'm just, I'm just describing what, what America has experienced, but man, if I'm going to change a poopy diaper, if I'm going to get peed all over, if I'm going to get vomit on my nice suit, then man, I, I expect some return. <laughs> Just a little bit. 
I promise my love is unconditional, mostly, right? But this is what Amer many Americans believe to be true about their life. And we're reaping the consequences of this freedom worldview that leads to fragmentation and isolation. In fact, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, a pollster, are you still with me? Yeah. A pollster, he, he's describing the American Christian, and this is their preference. They prefer, again, describing the average Christian, they prefer um, multiple church experiences over or rather than getting the most out of one single church. They, um, most uh, American Christians, n none of us, we don't have this problem, right? But most American Christians think that spirituality is a private thing unrelated to the local church. Most American Christians also view churches as a commodity that we consume rather than something that we serve and we belong and we're a part of. And most American Christians are transient. Up to 20% switch churches. In fact, every 18 months, the average Christian switches churches. Right? We're driven by, okay, feed me. If you don't feed me, if you don't play that song, or if you don't do that message, then I'm going to find the church that's going to fit my needs. Uh, one, I love this story. One woman uh, came, not to our church, but one, one woman was at church one day, and uh, she really liked the message, but she didn't like the worship. And so she, uh, at the end of the worship experience, she went out in the lobby, and she got a hold of the lead pastor and said, Pastor so-and-so. I just want to let you know that, man, I loved your talk, but, man, the worship just didn't, didn't do it for me. And I was wondering if we could, like, change songs um, over the next month, right? She kind of gave some examples of songs that whatever. The pastor looked at her and said, get behind me, Satan. Kidding. He did not. First service got that one. Jesus did tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. Anyways, um, the pastor lovingly looked at the woman and said, well, I just thank God that worship is not about you. It is, and he was very loving, but also firm. It is, and we want to do our best to appeal to a, a, a wide range of worship tastes. We get that. But at the end of the day, we don't come to church because Jesus is some sort of cosmic therapist who wants to give us an experience to make us feel better about ourselves. No, Jesus is in the business of spiritual transformation. And we come to church and celebrate and lift our hands and praise and every now and then get a little charismatic. Maybe dance every now and then because Jesus has given everything for us. And he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. Even when we're having a bad stinking day. Even when we're having a bad year. Even when we're tired out of our minds. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, he's worthy. Come on. He's worthy of our praise. The problem with this utilitarian approach to relationships, though, is that we have no concept of long-term commitments. 
In fact, we no longer have the long view, right? The long view when it comes to commitments is in a state of decay. We are untethered to community, the bonds of community. So what does the Bible say? What, what are the passages that we just uh, quoted about 15, 20 minutes ago? What, how do they address this unique American problem? Um, well, Jesus makes it very clear. He, he looks to, as his mom and his, his family comes to him. Mark tells us that Jesus looked to everybody and said, you are my mom, you are my bro, you are my sister. What is Jesus doing in this context? Many of us, it's lost on us because we're, we're kind of separated from our families, like many of us, which is, again, nothing wrong with that. Some of us have family members in like Florida and San Diego, and we're like, oh, that's, that's cool, right? We don't understand how revolutionary this family reference, this, what, what Jesus is doing, we don't fully, we find it incomprehensible, right? And it's lost on us. But let me just say this really quick. Jesus is obviously working within this um, ancient Mediterranean world, and in this ancient Mediterranean world, there was a strong emphasis on group over individual. Right or wrong, um, and some of you are going to feel claustrophobic when I mention this, but most families lived together. In fact, they lived in close proximity. Moms and dads lived with their kids and their great-grandkids, and et cetera. Some of you are like, oh, God, the room's like, oh, God, right? I want to throw up, right? Um, but this, there was this strong group emphasis. Obviously, they don't live in our tech, technocratic society, all that kind of stuff. There are reasons for that. But the ancient world operated on group over the individual. So you, you, would, have, um, you would have families that would not only just live together in close proximity, even in the same house, they would also do life together on a vocational level. So that's why you have sons and, and grandsons and great-grandsons taking on the vocation of their fathers and, and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. So when Jesus comes to uh, this crowd and responds to even his mom and dad, uh, his mom and his uh, brothers and sisters in this situation, he is staking a claim that he is in this ancient Mediterranean world, he is reshaping a new family. So Jesus sees the church, right? He sees the church not as a business structure. He does not see the church as um, a group of individuals on a personal quest for fulfillment. He doesn't see the church just comprised of fragmented scientists and fifth grade teachers and baseball card enthusiasts and uh, billionaire executives coming together. No, he sees the church as a family. Sociologists call, calls this thick relationships. In our Western world, we have thin relationships. Thin relationships means that we're not interdependent on each other. We're dependent upon ourselves. In this ancient world, you had interdependency as a means of survival. So if you wanted food, if you wanted to make it, if you wanted power, if you wanted strength in this ancient world, you had to stick with who you were stuck with. <laughs> Whether you liked them or not, you had to stick with who you were stuck with. And when people kind of read Mark chapter 3, they usually kind of think, okay, Jesus, this is kind of an anti-family passage. Jesus is saying, okay, um, he's kind of pat answer when he says, you are my mom and you're my bro and your sister. That simply means we're a part of Jesus. We're not committed to community. We're supposed to follow Jesus. And we're like souls trying to get into heaven. And that's not what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus' radical social vision is not centered around saving individual souls for heaven. It is centered around heaven coming to earth through a new faith family. So this is all about establishing a new kinship group. This is about creating a new family that is organized and structured around brothers and sisters. The problem, as I mentioned before, and we see this a lot in the church world, and I hope you know I'm not negative because I so believe in the church. And I so believe that our best days are in front of us. I so believe that we are on the brink of a move of God in the Treasure Valley. But if we want to be a part of this next great awakening in our city, our valley, our country, we have to learn to do life together. The problem, though, is our emphasis over personal identity. Right? We emphasize our quiet time. We emphasize the Holy Spirit speaking to us. But when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament... Personal identity is great, nothing wrong with that, but the New Testament overwhelmingly emphasizes our corporate identity. In fact, the reference our Lord um, is used 50 times. Only once my Lord is used in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, which illustrates how we are interconnected, that we belong in a family if you are in Christ. In fact, Isaiah, we find this replete throughout the Bible and the biblical arc. We find we're introduced to all these different characters, right? They're all messed up. They're all broken, a little bit crazy. But we have Isaiah, and he's first introduced to us not as Isaiah the poet, not Isaiah as the man who sees the future, not a futurist. No, we're introduced to Isaiah as the son of Amos. We're introduced to James and John, not as the sons of thunder, and the ones who would transform or help transform the, the ancient world. No, James and John were introduced to us, not as fishermen, but as the sons of Zebedee. So there's an overemphasis of our relationship with the family. In fact, uh, Cyprian of Carthage in AD 250, he says, said this, he does not have the church for his mother, cannot have God for his father. This utilitarian relationship that we have with people has caused us to separate, create these hard and fast categories between serving God and having a personal relationship with Jesus and then serving each other in a local church. Somehow those two are mutually exclusive. In fact, there's a growing consensus among a lot of Christians that yes, I could be an unchurched Christian untethered from community. That's not Bible. That's American-styled Andre Agassi, I'm a rebel, individualism. We are called to do life together. In fact, the dominant way that the New Testament describes, are you guys still with me? I'm almost done. Describes a New Testament follower of Jesus is not Christian. Christian is used only three times to describe a follower of Jesus, right? Um, Methetes, which means disciple or apprentice, is used 268 times to describe a Christian. But the primary way or descriptor of Christians in the New Testament is brother and sister. The Greek word for that phrase is used almost over 350 times. Central to Jesus' vision for authentic Christian community, in the words of one scholar, is the priority of sibling relationships. 
He goes on to say that, yes, we are a family, and we're called to do life together, and we are better and stronger, and we have more grace when we uh, live together as a family. But he goes on to say that the closest family bond in the Mediterranean world was not marriage, because marriages were arranged. He said the closest family bond was between siblings. So when the Bible refers to us as brothers and sisters, that is not an obligatory nomenclature or way to describe our loose connection to each other. When the Bible says that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, it means to evoke this Mediterranean, intimate, vulnerable, doing life together relationship that brothers and sisters would have experienced in the ancient world. I think the problem, and I grew up in this, is that we would come to church, uh, my sisters and I, with my parents, and this is like in the 80s and early 90s, and everyone would talk to each other. They would say, hey, brother, brother so-and-so, right? How you doing, brother so-and-so, right? Or sister such-and-such, right? And we would use bro language and sister language all the time, and it evoked family-like stuff. But it's funny. Most of the time, or most of the people who call me, like, they did it. It was weird but they would call me Brother Chris. I'm like, please stop calling me Brother Bro Chris, right? Most of them didn't know me. Most of them had like a faint knowledge of me because I was a pastor's kid, right? And I was the, the, the best looking redhead ever, okay? I had that for me. Kidding. Gosh, you guys are a hard crowd, okay? Um, most of them kind of knew me, but they didn't really know me. So using bro language and sister language was an obligatory thing that really didn't have anything behind it. Here's the thing. I realized last year that if, we are go, if, if we're serious, as I close here, about reaching people in our world, if we're serious about getting bigger, we're going to have to grow smaller. We're going to have to change the model of doing church. We're going to have to structure how to do life together. I'm not suggesting we got to go back to leave it to beaver days, right? Can I get any man to that, please? I'm not saying we got to go back to the 19th century and we can't choose our own spouse. We got to marry our sister or our first cousin or whatever, right? What I am saying is that there is a model that the Holy Spirit is speaking to a lot of pastors when it comes to church that can help facilitate life together. Because I think most of us would say, yes, theologically, Chris, I agree with that. But on a practical daily, like, life experience, we do not know how to do that. If we can learn to do this, if we can learn to do life together, it will be a transformative thing, not only in us, but it will help, I believe, transform our city. We are better together. I'm going to talk about that over the next few weeks. So, um, how did we get smaller? Last year, we, as I close, and I want to pray for us, last year, if you were here, uh, we had a summer series that was organized around hospitality and tabling, right? Remember that? I think one of our greatest strengths as a church is hosting parties. Can I get an amen? I, this is what I love about our church. We love to celebrate. We love to party. We love to throw barbecues, right? Love 4th of July. Come on, how many of you love 4th of July? We just, come on. We love bigger parties where people can gather together 
right? We love it when the cops are called out on us. People are doing illegal fireworks. I mean, you feel alive when that happens, right? People are running everywhere. Kids are like, mom, dad, right? It's the best. It's never, it's only happened two times to me. Anyways, um, we, we, we do really well at hosting, hosting parties. And so we, we started talking about that last summer. And then over the last year, I've been really praying about, okay, God, I really feel like if we're going to get better, bigger, we got to get smaller. And uh, that means we got to change how we do things. we got to restructure how we do church. And so I began to think about small groups. So I was in a um, long conversation with the Holy Spirit a couple months, talked to a lot of people that I respected, met with our translocal elders, talked to um, elders, executive team, really prayed over this. And I came to the conclusion that the way we identify how we win as a church, number one, is not by, um, I'll say it this way, some churches will determine their successfulness based on how many show up on a Sunday, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I, we want people to come to church. Can I get amen? More people come to church opposed to less, it's better. We want more people to come. Um, but as a, just so you know, as a church and in proxy for our elders and our executive team, my wife and I don't determine successfulness based on who shows up on a Sunday. Another metric for success for some churches, again, there's nothing wrong with this, is how many people give or how much do they give. Those are important. Let me just say something really quick about generosity. Generosity has nothing to do, firstly, about amount. Let me just say that. Just so you know, I, may, you might disagree. I know some people in here actually disagree with me on this. But this is now vulnerable talk. This is, can, this is house talk. I don't look at giving numbers. I don't. Because giving is not about how much you give. And I think as we grow in, in Christ, we do give more. But that's, giving is less about how much you give. It's more about you participating in generosity. Giving, in other words, is more about you. Because the life that Jesus gives us is defined by generosity. Can I get an amen to that? So to bring that full circle, we don't measure successfulness by giving, and we want giving. Not to say that that's not important, but that's not the number one goal or the number one way we define successfulness. Number three is another way people define successfulness as salvations, and we believe that's more important than attendance. Can I get an amen in giving? Salvations, people coming to Jesus for the first time, giving their lives, getting transformed by God, God doing great things, rescuing them from sin and dehumanized behavior and putting them into a body, that's really important. But there are two metrics that help us define successfulness as a church. This is through a lot of prayer and a lot of talk. Those two things are baptism. We believe baptism is important. It's that next step. Baptism is all about publicly announcing that you are identifying with Jesus for life, right? So we track baptism. But the most important metric for successfulness, just so you know, over the next 20 years as we do church, is getting people plugged into not just a Sunday morning, not just getting plugged into the belief that giving is important, that's great, not just getting people saved, that's awesome, but moving people down a pathway into baptism, but the ultimate goal that I have for everyone in this church, we're talking 2,000 people, is to get them plugged into a small group.
Not a small group where you can't be yourself to all the commitment phobes. Not a small group that you gotta be and you gotta live with people you don't like. We're not gonna force small groups, but our desire is to create a pathway for everyone in this church to move down and to get plugged into small groups because we have a belief that there are some things that God will not do on a Sunday morning that he will only do in a small group. That doesn't make, small, that doesn't make Sunday morning bad. Sunday morning is the, one, is the most important thing that we do. But Sunday morning is designed to, to launch us into life together in a given week, in a calendar year. There's the adventure in that. And some of you are going to experience the thrill of being a part of a small group this year, I believe it. And some of you have been in this church for a while and you haven't really plugged into a small group for a lot of legitimate reasons. I hope over the next few weeks and over the next few months, I'll be able to challenge those reasons. God will set you free. God will open your heart. And you will know without a shadow of a doubt that being a part of a small group is the most important thing that you can do bring healing to your family, to your life. So the question is, and this is where I, I end, how do we stink and do that? Because there's roughly, if, this, if the statistics bear themselves out, only 10% of you want to be a part of a small group. Come on, I'm not going to have you raise your hand because it would be a little bit depressing. How many of you don't want to be a part of a small group, right? Don't raise your hand. I get it. I get it. A lot of us, again, we have our issues, and over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about those. Why? It's important that you get plugged in, in spite of maybe some of your legitimate concerns. How do we do that? So we spent the last few months really praying, fasting, talking through this issue. And we felt like the only way we can get people from a large group experience on a Sunday plugged into doing life together with bros and sisters and changing the world, right? Can I get an amen? We had to create a bridge. So we're thinking about this structurally. And so we decided, okay, we got to come up with a system. And so we came up with medium groups or what we're calling parties. And so we have parties, which is, consists of 20, 30, 40, could be 50, could be 75 people that come together. They barbecue. It's informal. There's no pressure. It's a place where you can get to know each other. Some parties will focus on football. Other parties will focus on football. Other parties will focus on football. Other parties will focus on football. Come on, we love football, right? Football and barbecue, right? That's my party, people. But we, we want to design, and again, there are different expressions to these parties. Some are gonna have dinner parties at their house. Some are gonna have parties in the park. Some, of you, some parties are gonna play spike ball, cornhole. Um, one example of a party of a pastor, he decided on 4th of July for 10 years is what he's gonna do. He's gonna create a medium-sized group. He's gonna invite his neighborhood and uh, they're gonna have a parade with all the kids in it. And at the end, they would have a big fireworks show with a lot of illegals. Sorry, kidding. Um, and then they would have like a root beer float kind of a thing. He did that for 10 years in his neighborhood. He invited some of his church friends there, but most, it was mostly for neighborhood, uh, his neighbors and, and in his neighborhood, his block party. And uh, he, he uh, he testified or he shared a story that many of those people that were a part of that block party actually came to Jesus and got plugged into church, right? Why? Because it was a step. There's so many times people don't want to come into church because it's, that's, that's, that's like a leap, right? But we want to create a bridge 
where we'll call it baby steps. I don't know. I don't mean to be patronizing, but some of us were like, I don't want to do small group, but I can hang out with people, right? Get to know them, do some barbecue, talk football, talk shop, whatever. And then from there, we believe that small groups are, are organically going to happen. This is our vision for the next 20, 25 years. We're not here about oppressing you. We're not here to like take away your individuality. We're not saying you can't um, do life with other friends. We just want to create an opportunity for people to plug into small groups and the best way we can do that. Let's take baby step this summer and let's get plugged into these parties. So when did these parties, when did they happen? Well, thanks for asking that question. July 18th will be our first round of parties. I think we got about 10, 11, maybe 50, I don't know. We have a few of them uh, around our city and uh, we want you to sign up for that. We want you to um, ask, how do they sign up? The Connect booth and then Tracy will kind of give you information at the end of service after I'm done praying with you. You can be a part of these parties that are happening throughout the city. This is where I end. So about four months ago, I was praying, more like six months ago, we were in a prayer meeting. How many of you believe in prayer? So we were praying with someone strumming the guitar. We had about 50 people crammed into a house. I was just sitting there, I had my Bible open. I was just worshiping, praying, eyes closed. And then um, I saw a vision. It was the strangest thing. I knew it was the Holy Spirit. It gave me a vision. It was like a, a map. And I knew quickly it was a, a dark, darkened um, silhouette of our valley. And this kind of darkened silhouette of our valley was lit up with all these different lights. And instantly I knew what that meant. I felt like God was saying, I'm going in the next decade throughout this city, God's going to raise up these little micro communities that are organized around hospitality in small groups and doing life together where they're praying and worshiping and having fun and celebrating and serving the city. And I saw these lights all over our valley on this silhouetted map. It's funny, I got done. I didn't know how to interpret all of that. We got done with the prayer meeting. About an hour later, I, I called my dad, I go, Pastor Ken, he's our founding pastor. I go, is this crazy? Does this make sense to you? I go, I had this vision from God, and I just want to throw it your way. And I explained to him what it was, and my dad started laughing. He goes, Chris, when your mom and I planted this church in 1983, and as we were driving to this valley, God gave me the same vision. We had never... A vision of little lighthouses, of parties and small groups, doing life together and transforming our city. In fact, the Holy Spirit gave me lighthouses, and I've never heard of that word, doesn't even make sense. I'm a land guy, right? Lighthouses, right? Is that a sea thing? I don't know. But it was the same word that God gave my dad in 1983, lighthouses. So I think it's safe to say we're kind of where we need to be, right? So my challenge is to you, as we close, I'm going to pray for you. Get involved in these parties. Sign up. Tracy's going to help you uh, figure out how to do that. Um, and then this week and over the next few weeks as we talk more about community, I want you to open up your heart to what maybe the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. Maybe set you free from some bad habits. Maybe speak to you about really belonging and serving and contributing. Amen.